Scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Listen now for God's word to you. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, he sent them to his vineyard. Then he went out around nine in the morning and saw others standing around in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went. Again around noon and then at three in the afternoon he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon he went and found others standing around and he said to them, why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day long? Because no one has hired us, they replied. And he answered, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one of them received a denarian. Now when those hired first came, they also thought that they should receive more. But each of them also received a denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last worked one hour, and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work in the, in the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to, those, to this one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have a right to do with to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So you all know this because I've shared it before, uh, but my favorite show of all time is the sitcom The Office. And uh, I remember the last time I shared this, it elicited some groaning, uh, <clears throat> because I know that either you're like me and you like the show and you watch it incessantly because it brings you comfort, uh, or you're someone who just absolutely can't stand the show. And really, your ability to watch the show depends on whether you can stand the character Michael Scott, who is portrayed by the actor Steve Carell. Um, I've, had, I've told lots of people, I've suggested this show to like everybody I know, and a lot of people have said... I tried to watch it, but I could not stand the character Michael Scott. And uh, honestly, I, I understand it. Michael Scott is really a cringy character. Uh, if you struggle with secondhand embarrassment, uh, you probably can't stand watching The Office because he does a lot of really cringy things, these ill-timed and inappropriate jokes, these constant impromptu meetings in the conference room where he asks overly personal questions that should never be asked in any workplace. And he's just... He's like overly inept at his job. You kind of wonder how he ever got his position. And yet somehow he, his branch of the fictional paper company, Dunder Mifflin, is always ahead. They're always the, the top performing branch in the company. Uh, he's really just this kind of absurd character. And there are times in the show where you want to cheer for him, you want good things for him. But overall, he's just kind of this annoying character. Uh, but he's what makes the show work. This absurd boss, like it or not, is what makes The Office the show that it is, what's made it the, the cult classic that people like me go back to again and again and again. Uh, because the truth is that Michael Scott left the show, or Steve Carell left the show two seasons before the show actually ended, and the show really kind of fell flat on its face at that point. 
It really depends on this absurd manager who's the parody of every boss any one of us has ever had. It depends on this absurd character who acts in unrealistic and unbelievable ways. Jesus' parables are full of these absurd characters who act in ways that no one would ever act. The the biblical scholar Matthew Skinner says that these absurd characters are what makes Jesus' parables work. And that's who we have here this morning in the the figure of the landowner, the landowner who acts in these absurd ways that no no landowner in that society would have ever acted. Uh, Landowners were not known as being the heroes of most stories in that time and place. They were uh, sort of viewed as like the, the greedy fat cats, the wealthy corporate elite. They were the pre-conversion Ebenezer Scrooges. Um, they were people who had uh, come by exceeding amounts of wealth. And uh, the landowner that Jesus tells us about in this parable, he owns a vineyard, which tells us something else about who he is. Uh, because vineyards didn't produce a harvest for four or five years. So it was a sort of long-term investment that promised to yield great results. And so... In the meantime, those who owned vineyards owned other land that would produce more, uh, more, more usually so that they could receive money. They'd have money continually coming, uh, coming in. They had diversified portfolios, in the words of one commentator. Um, but it was the ways that these landowners had come by this land that really made them the villains of the story or the villains of that society. So you have all these little subsistence farms in first century Palestine, these little family farms, and through this process of Roman taxation, these farms fall into incredible amounts of debt because tax collectors took not only what was required for the tax, but then they were encouraged to take just a little bit more to make themselves even more wealthy. And so these little farms became crushed by debt. They ended up having to sell them to these wealthy elites who bought the farms, consolidated the land, and then... In order to make that land produce something, in order to work the land, you know, these wealthy elites aren't going to be out there farming themselves, right? They would then hire back these former owners of the land to be day laborers, to work for them. And as you can imagine, this is not a secure uh, way to earn money. This is a really dangerous and uh, insecure way of earning money. They would stand in the marketplace waiting to be hired. These are not regular employees with health insurance and with benefits, They're really at the whim of the landowner. And as you can imagine, a system like that is rife with exploitation. Um, That the landowner would sometimes withhold wages, sometimes cheat them on wages. And they really had no recourse. The the day laborers really had no recourse. There's no Department of Human Resources for them to go to. There's no labor laws for these landowners to adhere to. And so these are the people that, a lot of the people that Jesus preaches to are people who would have experienced this as their daily lived reality. Standing in the marketplace, waiting to be hired. Some days there was work, some days there wasn't work, some days there was work for part of the day, and some days there was work for the entire day. And sometimes you'd have to get in these disputes with the landowner when they would cheat you out of money. We get this little look into a segment of economic life in first century Palestine. But the landowner of this parable is absurd, and he acts in unbelievable ways. So first of all, the landowner in this parable that Jesus tells goes to the marketplace to hire the workers for the day. No landowner in that society would have ever gone to the marketplace to do the hiring. He would have had one of his subordinates, someone called a manager, go and do that hiring. And yet here is this landowner, the crack of dawn, 6 a.m., out hiring people in the marketplace. And he makes a a verbal contract with them. 
He says, I'll pay you a denarius, the typical day's wage for work in that society. And then they come back and they work in his, in his vineyard. But then the parable starts to look like an episode of Undercover Boss. Um, <laughs> you know, where the CEO is incredibly inept at doing the, the jobs of his subordinates. So this landowner seems to have no concept of how much labor he needs for the day. So he goes back again at 9 o'clock in the morning and he hires even more people, and he makes a verbal contract with them, not for a denarius, but for whatever is right, he says, a sort of vague term that you know, possibly leaves it open to exploitation. And it continues in its absurdity. The, the landowner goes back again at 12 at noon and at 3 to hire even more people. And this time there's no verbal contract that we're, that's recorded, no uh, contract about what he's going to pay them. So they uh, imagine expect something. It's certainly not a full day's wage pay. And then finally, the landowner goes back again at five in the afternoon, one hour before the workday is supposed to end, and he sees still more people standing around. And he says, why have you been standing around here all day doing nothing? And you can sort of hear the, the accusation in that phrase. And what they say is, nobody has hired us. And we start to get a sense of who these 5 p.m. workers are, that they are the, the nobodies of the world, the left out and the forgotten, the, the people that no one wanted to hire. The reason they're standing there is nobody wanted to hire them. But the landowner says, you come back and you work in my vineyard for an hour. They're like the people who show up right when like, you're tying off the garbage bag, right? And they say, do you need any help? Um, <clears throat> Workday ends at 6 o'clock and... This time, the landowner says to his manager, you make sure you write the checks to them. Like, he at least has the sense to have the financial piece done by somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, but do it this way. He says, pay the workers hired last first, then work your way backward through the rest of the day. And so the 5 p.m. workers come forward, and they receive a denarius, the typical day's wage. And the same thing happens with those hired at 3 and at noon and at 9. And it says... The, the six o'clock workers are watching all of this happen. You know the adage in the workplace, no one should know what everyone else is making? This, I mean, this, this landowner is completely inept at owning a vineyard, at running a business. And so these six o'clock workers come forward, and they are expecting more, it says. But they also receive a denarius. And they start to grumble and complain at the landowner. Grumble and complain that it's not fair they sound like siblings arguing with each other about things not being fair. They sound like kids complaining it's not fair that they don't have a cell phone in first grade. They... You know what? They're not always wrong, though, right? Sometimes things are unfair. And it is unfair that people hired at 5 p.m. were paid the same as those hired at 6 a.m., that they worked all day in the hot sun. And you know how much I love being outside in the hot sun, right? <laughs> like, if that was me, I would be grumbling too. It's unfair. They say, you have made us equal to them. You have made them our equals. You have devalued our labor. And we've all been there, right, in the workplace where we feel like we show up and we give the, the best that we have. We work as hard as we can, and yet somebody receives the same pay, even though they don't work as hard as we want them to or as, as hard as we think they should. Or in school, working on a group project and someone slacks off, but they receive the same grade. We've, we've been there. It's unfair. 
And I think it reveals something to us about sort of the collective consciousness that we all live with in our society. This great fear that we seem to have that somebody is going to get something for free. This great fear that somebody is going to get something that they did not work hard enough for or they did not earn. And often that fear is directed at those 5 p.m. type workers, the ones who are at the very bottom, the ones who are often forgotten and left out. Think about the sort of national conversations we've been having over the last several years. Conversations about things like what the minimum wage should be. Conversations about, is $15 an hour too much for that kind of labor? Or think about the the kind of conversations that happened at the height of the pandemic as people were losing their jobs and, and unemployment benefits were more generous than they normally are and people complaining, oh, they just want to sit at home. Nobody wants to work anymore. I remember I had a, a member of my family who was a, a delivery driver uh, during the pandemic, a FedEx driver, and uh, he was working longer hours than normal because all of us were at home online shopping because we had nothing else to do. And, and he complained that people who were on unemployment were getting paid the same as him, and he was working 12, 13 hours a day. Think about the, the sort of conversations about how we should drug test those who need a little bit of help, who need hand up in life. Well, that's sort of that, that, great, that great fear that somebody who is poor is taking advantage of us. The sort of collective fear that we all seem to kind of live with that somebody is getting too much and they're not getting what, they, they didn't earn what they've got. When I graduated from college, uh, I moved back to my hometown, back into my parents' house, which is always fun. Um, <laughs> And uh, Heather and I were still dating at the time, and uh, we joined a, a church there in my hometown. And uh, while I was at that church, I got to know a, a guy named Don. And Don was this really kind of colorful character. He was this uh, Canadian-American who was like in his 70s, and he was uh, incredibly impatient, which was kind of funny to watch. Um, but one of the things he was most impatient about was that there was somebody who needed something, who was struggling, and nobody was helping them. Um, so Don uh, spent a lot of time, he had this really big compassionate heart. And so he spent a lot of time working with organizations like the American Red Cross. He would go help with disaster relief and places that were hit by natural disasters. And, and one of the things that Don was really involved with, one of the, the causes close to his own heart was this organization uh, called PADS, which was an acronym for Public Assistance to Deliver Shelter. So it's a lot like SOS here, where we have churches on a rotation where those who experience homelessness can come and stay for the night. They would rotate around different churches in the area. And so one of the things that that PADS had started doing, too, was helping to get people into public housing, helping to move them off the streets. And and really the way that it worked, though, is that they just worked to get them the place, but then that was kind of it. They gave them the key, and then that was the end of it. And when you're moving off the streets, you don't have a whole lot of stuff, right? You don't have furniture or beds or TVs or stuff for the kitchen. And and so uh, one day, Don got a call from someone who was was associated with PADS, uh, a young single mother, I think she had like three young kids. And she had called Don. I don't know how she got his number. She wanted to know if he, had, if he could get her some more pots and pans and dishware and a kitchen table for her. And so Don decided, I'm going to go check this out, see what her situation is. And he showed up to her uh, public housing apartment. And uh, she had no kitchen table. She had her three kids. She had one pot, one spoon. And she had made mac and cheese because that's what's infor- affordable. And she was sitting there on the floor with her kids Take the spoon, feed it to one kid, go back in the pot, feed it to the next kid, back in the pot, next kid, 
back in the pot, feed herself, and she'd just go around in a circle like that. And, and Don was really disturbed by this. He, this, this. This should not be the reality, he thought. So he called, he called Paz and said, hey, can you all, is there ways that you can help people like this, not just getting them into an apartment, but like, can we get them stuff that they desperately need for their, for their new homes? And they said, you know, we're not really equipped for that. We don't have the personnel for all of that stuff. And so, so Don made it his personal mission to make sure that people who are moving off the streets into Section 8 housing had the necessary items for their houses. And so he started collecting like household items, pots and pans and dish sets and all that sort of thing. And, but the problem is Don didn't really have a place to store all that in his house. And so he got in touch with uh, this owner of, a, of an industrial space in our hometown. And he asked him, do you have any space that I, could that I could rent so I could store dressers and bed frames and all this other stuff? And I want to help give them to the, those who are moving off the streets. And the, the owner of this industrial space said, you can have this space over here for free. Um, so Don got this little like warehouse space just, for, just because of what he was doing. And, and Don also drove a sedan and didn't necessarily have the, an ability to transport large furniture items. Um, but Don's kind of an industrious guy. And so he was driving by this, this real estate office down the street from my apartment. And he saw one of those like 10-foot moving vans that real estate companies often have. And he walked in and said, hey, would I be able to borrow those? Uh, to help get furniture for those who are moving off the streets. And they, they said, sure, you can do that. Just don't use it when uh, we're moving customers, when we're moving clients. And so kind of overnight, Don had started this little charitable organization, like out of his own free time, to make sure that people who needed stuff could receive it. And, and I started working with Don and started helping him with this in my own free time sometime around 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. And um, and I got to hear a lot of the stories of the people that Don helped in those earliest days. One of the ones that really stuck with me was um, this family who had a young daughter who they couldn't afford a bed for her. And so she was sleeping on a door that had been taken off the hinges and was sitting on cinder blocks. Um, and so Don was able to get a, a, a bed for her. And, and we helped all sorts of people, all sorts of people that would look, look a lot like those 5 p.m. workers, those people that are often forgotten and left out, people that, that are often looked at with suspicion, the, the people that said, why are you standing around all day? And, um, and, I, and, and a lot of the people that we helped, they, they needed it. But I remember that there were a few houses and a few apartments that we delivered to that already had a lot of stuff. And I, and I wondered sometimes, was, did they really deserve it? Did they really need the stuff that we were bringing them? Um, I remember after one particular house, we... Uh, delivered uh, a couch and a TV and a bed, I think, and they already had a lot of that stuff in the house. And, and some people at the church were grumbling, wondering, was Don getting taken advantage of and all this other stuff? And so on the, in, the, in the truck on the way back, I asked Don, I said, don't you worry that you're giving stuff to people who don't necessarily need it, who are taking advantage of you? And I don't necessarily remember what Don said. I just remember the look on his face and kind of how annoyed he was at me with that question. <laughs> he basically said, I don't worry about any of that. I don't care about any of that. I just want to make sure that my neighbors, that people in need, get what they need. They get what they, get what they so desperately need. There's a quote that I love um, that says, you should never look in your neighbor's bowl to make sure that they have more than you. You should only look in your neighbor's bowl to make sure that they have enough. And I think that that's how Don lived his life. He never qualified anybody he gave to. He just wanted to make sure that they had enough, that those 5 p.m. workers, those who are so often left out and forgotten and looked at with skepticism for that one moment, that one interaction with him, they didn't have to worry about any of that. They were just treated with dignity and received the things that they needed. 
And I think that that's how the landowner operated. He operated with a completely different paradigm, a concern that his neighbors had enough. Why else would he be at the marketplace at 5 p.m.? He doesn't need it for the labor. He's there because he knows, I think he's there because he knows that there are people who are going to be left out and forgotten who need something, people whose families depend on them for daily bread, people who are waiting anxiously, hoping that they can bring something back for them. And yeah, it's unfair. It's unfair that the 5 p.m. workers receive the same as the, the, nine, the 6 a.m. workers. Yeah, it's unfair. Yeah, the landowner is completely inept at his job. Maybe the, the economist laughed at him for his overly generous uh, offering to those who didn't work a, whole, a full day. Maybe the, the other landowners got together and, and talked about how he was disrupting their system of, of making sure that they had wealth. But, but maybe a system like that needs to be disrupted. Maybe the operating question for the landowner was, does my neighbor have enough? What is the kingdom of God like, Jesus asks? It's like that question, does my neighbor have enough? Does my hungry and poor neighbor have enough? Does my, my exploited neighbor have enough? Does my neighbor who does not work as hard as I do have enough? Does my neighbor who is a victim of circumstance have enough? Does my neighbor who is sometimes a victim of their own bad choices, do they have enough? It's these absurd characters, I think, that help us to begin to ask and answer that question, to imagine what the answer to that question might be. These absurd characters like this landowner, like Don, like these people who do these absurd things whose attention is always on their neighbors having enough. And when our neighbors have enough, when our 5 p.m. neighbors have enough, it's one of the ways we know that the kingdom of God has arrived. Thanks be to God. Amen.